This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson. Carlson, jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Vackra, snälla, lagomsiga Carlson. It's the second go around. <laughs> okay, let me try another one. Just a little second. Yes! Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. The best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky. We're here with a summer series edition of Keeping Carlson. And with me, of course, is my co-host, Brian Calm. Hey, everybody. Elon, you are in post-season form with those show openings. Well done. And I think it's a really great way to make sure that all our patrons and listeners are as enthusiastic as we are for the summer series coming up. The regular season might be over, but there is still a ton to break down from the season that has passed and the season that is going to come here on the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast. Yeah, like, don't think that this summer series is just going to be about nostalgia and, like, who are my best contributors? Who are my worst contributors? No, like, we are going to be focusing on what are the lessons we can learn to win our pools next year. If you won this year, it's going to be harder to win next year because you're probably going to get a crappy draft pick. And if you lost, well, it's time to change that. So we've got a lot of work to do, and we have to start now. It's April... The season's only six months away. That's nothing. Okay, so before we get started, of course, presented by DailyFaceOff.com. Great website. We mention it every week. Also, I want to thank the patrons for joining us for a great patron cast last Tuesday. It was a lot of fun. One of the most interesting things we talked about was how all these backup goalies are playing in the playoffs, and it's really different than what normally happens. And we talked about how this should affect maybe goalie drafting strategy for next season. Brian had a lot of interesting thoughts about that. Of course, the patrons asked some great questions. It was a great time. And you know, if you're listening and you're not a patron, you're like, I want to listen to that patron cast. You could sign up and become a patron. And then you have access to all previous patron casts. And we've got a special going on for this summer because we want to hold on to our patrons and get any new ones that we can because we know next season is going to be so great. So as of now, if you sign up as a patron for any amount of money, doesn't have to be $5. It could be any amount. You could become a patron of Keeping Carlson and have access to the Facebook group, patron casts, everything. Full patron benefits for any amount. If only your hand motions were visible while you were saying that. That would really clearly communicate how excited we are to be able to to do this for the summer and have an opportunity to invite more people in as patrons to the show. Just come see what it's all about. 
And one last thing to mention before we get into our topic for today's episode, maybe I should mention what it is. We're going to be talking about players who surprised us this year, players who put up a pace at the beginning of the year and we were like, oh, that's not going to keep up. And then it did. And now we need to know how does that affect our projections for them next year. That's the plan for this week. One thing, though, I want to mention is we've got our Keeping Carlson playoff pool going on right now. And Brian, can you give us an update on who's doing well? It's still early. We're still in the first round. So I feel like any team that's doing really badly... It's not to say that they picked a bad team. It might just be that they picked some players that are going to be doing well soon. Right, Brian? That's exactly what somebody who owns the team that is ranked 59th out of 61 teams in our playoff pool would say. (laughs) Elon, that is where you and the Carl Smartest currently sit. And we were saying that that could be like the name of the imaginary trophy that goes between us every time one of us wins or loses a bet that we make on the show, and I'm going to say right now that if you finish in the bottom 10, that totally negates any possibility of us using the Carl Smartest for that imaginary trophy. Oh man, so a lot's on the line. I like this name that I came up with. I hope that I can do it. I think I'm going to beat you by the end of the year. How about that? How about we put the trophy on the line if I could beat you? Because you know what? You're ahead of me right now, but you've got a bunch of St. Louis Blues. They're down three games to two. You've got Sedin and Verbata. I don't see the Canucks hanging in there. I have a feeling that before the end of the playoffs, you're going to eat these words. But who's in first place right now? Like Who's at the top? It's our, some of our awesome listeners that are a lot smarter than us, apparently. We've got Moons Over My Hammond, which is a fantastic name. And I think a Denny's pun leading the way, followed by the blurst of time, of course, a classic Simpsons reference, and Don't Cry For Me, Yen Herdina, a classic (laughs) fantasy hockey name. They're all tied with 70 points for first. There's a couple of teams with 69, a bunch of 68. It's too close to call right now, but it'll definitely be something fun to track. And if you want to hear us talk more about the playoffs, check out that last patron cast, because we talked a lot about it. But today, we're looking to next year, like I said, And the first player I want to talk about that surprised us, I already hinted that we were going to talk about him, it's Nick Foligno. He ended this season with 73 points in 79 games. And before that, his highest ever point total was 47 points in 82 games. And this isn't some rookie, right? He is 27 years old, he's in the middle of his career, and he just had this breakout year. And I remember earlier in the year when he was doing well at the start, Brian... And I don't think it was a dumb thing to say, but he was like, okay, he's probably not going to be able to keep this up, so now might be a good time to sell high. I think, Brian, you even had him in your pool, and you did sell, and you ended up not winning the pool. I don't know if that's the reason. You came in second. But obviously, we were wrong about Nick Foligno for this season. But another thing that's obvious is that next year, he's going to be a lot higher in draft rankings, right? Like, if he was undrafted or drafted in the last couple of rounds last season, this season, he's probably going to be drafted in mid-rounds, you know, I'd say at worst. So... The question now becomes, do you want to be the one who grabs Nick Foligno in those mid-rounds? Or do you think that he's going to go back to being a 50-point player and maybe he's someone that you should let someone else make the mistake on for next year? Or have we been sleeping on him long enough and we have to say, no, no, he's a 70-point guy now. Brian, give us your thoughts on Nick Foligno. I did put my money where my mouth was, Elon, when we suggested that Foligno might not keep up his pace at the start of the season way back in November. I traded him along with Andrew Lydon, and Mark Streit for Joe Pavelski and P.K. Subban. So I think it kind of worked out okay on my end because I got an extra roster spot out of that too. But I was wrong about Nick Foligno. We all were. So what happened 
last year that was different from years previous, and what does it say about the year that's coming for Nick Foligno? One of the big keys to his year was that he was just playing a more offensive role. He was asked to do more, and I think it was a bit of a self-perpetuating situation where he was asked to do more, he did more, and then he kept being called on to do more and more. So let's take a look at what Foligno did last year that was different from the three years prior. So to start with, he saw more offensive zone starts relative to the rest of his team. He saw three more minutes of time on ice per game. His shooting percentage went up six points. He had nearly one full point per 60 minutes more than the previous three years. He had nearly twice the goals per 60 minutes. And his teammates were shooting better overall with him on the ice. His team shot an extra three and a half percentage points better. And I feel like part of this is probably attributable to his teammates. He was playing with Johansson for most of the last couple of years while he's been in Columbus, but he also saw more time with Hartnell this year rather than Umberger, who was his more consistent line mate. And that's an improvement in itself. And if you look even further back to his days in Ottawa, he was often saddled with Chris Neal, which is not going to help anybody's offensive numbers. He also had nearly one extra minute of power play time per game, which would of course help him pad his total. One thing that concerns me a little bit, though, is that he had nearly the same rate of Corsi attempts per 60 minutes as previous years. So that means how many shot attempts were directed towards the net while he was on the ice. That number was exactly or close to exactly the same. So it's not like any more shots were being directed towards the net. You might argue that they were taken by better players or from better places, but we'll dig into that a little bit more in about a minute. Let's go back to that jump in shooting percentage because that's what made me nervous back in November when I traded him away and what still stands out at this point now that the season is finished. And one thing I should just point out is that he has actually maintained a high shooting percentage over his last 150 games played with Columbus. That's a sample of about 300 shots, which is decent. You'd like to see a few more to make sure it's really stable, but... It is worth noting that he's done that, and I actually, I can't recall seeing a player before whose shooting percentage jumped as significantly and consistently as his has just because he switched to a new team. This transition really happened when he moved from Ottawa to Columbus, except for a brief 40-game period during the lockout shortened season, because remember that shooting percentage tends to be fairly stable across a player's career and isn't necessarily a repeatable stat. So that means that one good or bad year of shooting percentage does not necessarily predict another. But if you do cut out that first half season that Felino spent with the Blue Jackets, he's actually managed the 12th best 5-on-5 shooting percentage in the entire NHL over the last two seasons. And Elon, of course, your boy Alex Tangay is in a class of his own at the top of that list. But the curious part is that with a similar shooting percentage to last year, Felino still managed 13 more goals this year than last year and only put 70 more shots on goal to get them. So that is a little bit of a streak that you can't necessarily expect to continue and be sustainable over long periods of time. But I did give a nod to shot location, and here's the details. While he was on the ice at 5-on-5, Columbus was averaging over three high-danger shots more per 60 minutes than the league average. And I should point out that a high danger shot is one that comes from the slot and low slot areas. And while he was on the ice at five on five, his team was also close to or above league average from other areas of the ice. In years prior, his teams registered just a quarter 
of that amount more than the league average from the slot and low slot areas. That's a really big difference between last year and the three years prior. So we'll be looking to see if he continues to take more shots and his teammates continue to take more shots from that area while he's on the ice. And of course, that data comes from the hex tally charts over at War on Ice. So what does this mean? Well, if he keeps seeing an increased offensive role that gives him a greater share of his team's offensive zone starts, ice time, and power play time, he'll inevitably keep posting better numbers. There's also the theory that the Blue Jackets are also more financially invested in him after they signed him to that lengthy and expensive contract extension. So he should see the opportunities that come with that kind of contract. At the same time, let's also not forget that he was a 39-point player just one season ago, which is really just above half of his total from this year. And we can't fully explain him nearly doubling his output, but his increased offensive role and better shooting percentage from himself and his teammates definitely played a big part. I'd still like to see him take more shots and put more shots on net. The fact that his shot attempts four this year was virtually unchanged from the previous three is a bit of a red flag for me. Though I know when you say shot attempts, you're including like missed shots and block shots and stuff. But overall on the year, he did have a lot more shots than he did have the previous year, 182 versus 111. Though I guess this year he played 79 games and last year was only 70, but still a bit higher of a shot rate, right? Yeah, and that might be a product of so many more of his shot attempts coming from the slot and low slot areas than they did in previous years. Okay, so after all of this, are you saying that you think he can keep up the 73 points or no? No, I'm not even going to leave you in suspense. I'm just going to give a flat out no. His previous career high was 47 points. Of course, he's never seen opportunities like the ones he saw this year. So sure, If you want to tab Felino as a 65 to 70 point guy for next season, that's your prerogative. I would probably draft him with a ceiling of about 60 points in mind and place a conservative estimate for him closer to 55 points. Sounds like then in most pools, that means you're just not going to draft him, right? Because I'm sure there's going to be at least one or two people in your pool that see him more as a 65, 70 point guy since he put up the 73 points last year. So basically you're kind of saying don't pick Felino unless like, he's fallen to other guys that you see as more of a 55, 60 point guy. Yeah, you might feel more comfortable taking him around the time that your opponents are starting to draft sleepers or long shots. He's still a decent depth guy for your roster. There's no doubt about it. But I think you'd be a little foolish and you might come out worse for wear if you do expect him to hit 70 again next season. Not to say that it can't happen, just saying that I don't think the odds are necessarily in his favor, and there might be a better player available at the time if you're looking at other 65-70 point players that are available. Also, my last concern with him is that I wonder if we're going to sort of see like a sophomore slump from him, even though this is like his umpteenth NHL season. Teams are going to be coming into games against Columbus prepared to shut him down. They weren't this season. So we'll see how that affects his ability to put up points next year. Yeah, and I guess I'll just end by saying, on one hand, he's still going to be playing with Ryan Johansson, who's going to be one year older and is blossoming into quite the superstar. So you'd think that would be really good. But also you said the other great thing about this year is that he played with Scott Hartnell and he's a year older you know, on the other side of the fence where he's probably going to go down. It'll be interesting to see also Boone Jenner is starting. Like, Columbus does have some players that are starting to develop that you think will be able to increase their offense. I like Felino as, like, a 60 to 65-point guy. I think that's a reasonable thing to predict. I think you're going a little low with 55, so it'll be fun to see how it turns out. But, yeah, over 70, I find that hard to believe, especially in this now low-scoring NHL. But what an amazing year he had. 
55 points is admittedly conservative. I just would be afraid of getting burned from a player who, like I said, has beat his career best last year by 26 points. That is a significant jump, and I'd like to see it repeated before really buying in as per usual. And Elon, you had a good point about Columbus as a team. They were fantastic over the last two or three months of the year. They had a really strong finish to the season. They were expected to do better at the start, but were sort of hamstrung by injuries, no pun intended. So it'll be exciting to see what their roster is capable of pulling off next season. And I guess since we're on Columbus, let's just quickly talk about one more player who I think had a better season than I know you predicted for sure. Let's talk about Jack Johnson on defense. He ended the year with 40 points in 79 games, so over a half point per game, which, as you know, is very good for a defenseman, especially someone like Jack Johnson, who the previous year only had 33 points in a full 82-game season. I know all year you were kind of saying that Johnson isn't that great of a pick and you're not a big fan of having him on your fantasy teams, and you were saying that James Wisniewski is really the guy that you want on defense in Columbus. Well, James Wisniewski is not there anymore, and I wonder, does this hurt or help Jack Johnson, and do you think he'll be able to put up another 40-point season, or is he going to go back to being more of a 30-point guy? Like, aside from this year, he one time had 42 points in 82 games, for LA back in 2010-2011. That's his best ever season. Aside from that, he had a 36 in LA, and then 33 the previous year was his highest. So he has been more of a 30-point player. This time he hit 40. We just talked about how Columbus might be more of an offensive team as the years go by. And like I said, there's no more James Wisniewski, so I'm very curious to know what you think of Jack Johnson at this point. It's good, Elon, that you mentioned the two seasons that he cracked 40 points, because one thing they have in common is that they are 1-2 and in terms of how many power play points he scored in those years. So with Wisniewski gone, will he have more opportunities? Possibly, but you have to get the feeling that maybe David Savard is starting to emerge and will be breathing down Jack Johnson's neck eventually. I think for now, Jack Johnson still is the PP1 guy. And how did Jack Johnson get those extra power play points? Well, it's quite clear. When you look at his numbers since 2007, he saw far and away the best on-ice shooting percentage on the power play that he's seen over the last seven or eight seasons. And of course, it's going to help you get the 21 points on the power play that he did get last year, although the year before he did get 18, so it wasn't a huge difference. And then extra shooting percentage probably explains how he's able to do more with less this year. This year, he saw 50 minutes less of time with the five-on-four man advantage, but he was able to produce at a much higher rate, and he actually outproduced in 50 fewer minutes by four power play points. So good for him for doing that. Next year, Elon, I'm sorry to say, I still think he's more of a 35-point guy with the possibility of getting 40 points. You can draft him with that in mind, but I wouldn't want to rely on him to be, say, my number one or even number two fantasy defenseman. Actually, number two might be a stretch. He could be a good number two guy, depending on how deep your league is. Yeah, I guess it depends if a 35-point defenseman is a number two. And, you know, it's interesting, when you talk about defensemen, we're talking about a difference of five points, right? But it seems to mean so much. Like, the difference between 35 points and 40 points, that's a 12.5% swing. And a lot of that could just be a couple of good bounces here or there. But I like Jack Johnson as a 40-point defenseman. I like maybe his chances of next year breaking his record of 42 points in a season. Like I said before, you know, Ryan Johansson's a year older. Nick Foligno's coming into his own. I mean, this will be a fun thing to track for sure. And I guess we're again kind of disagreeing a little bit. But I could see him more as a 40 to 45 point. You see him more as a 35 to 40. Maybe I'm more of the optimist. And plus, I gotta love the fact that Jack Johnson's birthday is January 13th, which is also my birthday. 
I'm realizing that now when I'm looking at his player page. I think the difference in philosophy here, Elon, probably comes once again from this argument that we've had a few times on the show, which is the weight of what a player does at even strength versus the weight of what a player does with the man advantage. Because when I'm looking at Jack Johnson's even strength numbers, they have been remarkably consistent over the last seven or eight years. So when I'm looking at what a player does in 13 or 1400 minutes of ice time at even strength versus what a player does in about 200 or 250 minutes with the man advantage, I'm going to count on what they're doing in that greater sample of minutes as being a better indicator of what to expect because in such a small sample of minutes on the power play, that means that there's a lower likelihood that whatever they did is going to necessarily carry over into the next season and that an uptick in, say, shooting percentage is really going to persist and remain and roll over into next year's numbers. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I guess the other side of that is if I feel good about Jack Johnson being on the top power play and continuing to get opportunities, maybe with a better, stronger power play, that could be a reason to consider him doing better. Okay, next player I want to talk about. Let's go back to talking about superstars. This is probably the biggest name of people we'll talk about on the show. I want to talk about Rick Nash, who had an amazing season. He scored 42 goals this year and had 27 assists for 69 points in 79 games. But let's just focus on those goals. That's his career high in goals. And he's played in the league for like 10 years. Before that, he had a 41-goal year way back in 03-04, so over 10 years ago for Columbus. Then we keep talking about Columbus. He had another 40-goal year in there back in 08-09. But since then, he had never been higher than 33. But this year, he exploded. Also, his 69 points is his highest since 08-09 when he had 79 points. So Rick Nash really had a breakout season. I guess you don't call it a breakout season when you're a superstar, but a reemergence. As a top-tier guy, I'm sure he's going to be getting picked a lot higher in leagues, especially ones that value goals more than assists. So, Brian, is he now a 42-goal guy? Or do we think he's going to go back to what he'd been doing the previous years and score closer to 30 goals and get closer to 60 points as opposed to 40 and 70? It's interesting, Elon, that you say re-emergence, because when I started looking at Rick Nash's numbers... The more I looked, the more this season looked like a return to his Columbus form, which is odd because, yeah, he'll be 31 at the start of next year. And you'll also notice when you look that he hasn't actually been nearly as bad as maybe the harsh lens of New York hockey might have led you to think. He has not been far off of the pace of a superstar for the last little while since leaving Columbus, even though I think for a lot of us, his value did drop at least a little bit. Like you said, Elon, he broke the 40-goal mark this season for the third time in his 11-year career, and his shots per 60 minutes rates at even strength over the last two years have been the high watermarks of the last several years of his career. He also saw more power play time on ice this year than he ever had since leaving Columbus at the end of the 2011-2012 season, and he matched his increase in minutes on the power play with an increase in production. Now, I mentioned his age, and most players don't do this sort of thing when they turn 31 if they haven't been doing it already, but I guess what I'm getting at is that Nash kind of has been for a little while, and his years in New York are not as disappointing as they may appear. His first year as a Ranger was a lockout-shortened one, during which he was on pace to do essentially what he did this season over a full 82 games. That would have been thanks to a few extra shots on goal per game that he was putting on net. Last year, he would have notched about 33 goals if he'd played 82 games rather than the 65 that he did end up suiting up for. And in that season, he did see a dip in his shooting percentage, which would explain a bit of the difference between 33 and 42. 
And finally, this year he managed far more than 33, thanks to his shooting percentage veering in the positive direction. Though, if you do look at a visual graph showing his shooting percentage throughout the year, it pretty much shows how it started out really, really high, and then slowly came down to earth over the last several months, but that spike at the beginning is the reason why he grabbed 42 goals this year, as opposed to about 35. It's also worth noting that his shooting percentage bump showed up primarily on the power play, which is an even more volatile and unreliable shift than if it had come at 5 on 5. And just an interesting little sidebar, he tallied primary assists at his best ever rate per 60 minutes. Of course, I'm talking about at even strength. We can kind of counter this by saying that his on-ice shooting percentage was also his highest since 2007. Now, he drove a fair amount of that, but him getting more first assists might also indicate better finishing from the guys who are on the ice with him. Okay, but is he a lock to crack the 40-goal barrier again? Well, there has been a little contradiction in what I've said about his shot taking and even strength, and in this contradiction lies a potential concern. Although he is putting more shots on goal per 60 minutes than he has been in previous years, he's putting fewer shots on goal per game. Elon, can you figure out in your head what this means? I guess that must mean he's getting less ice time? Exactly. So he's seeing fewer minutes of ice, but the good news is that he's managed to do more with less And this should be the hope as he moves further along the wrong side of 30 that as his ice time decreases, he's still able to use and manage his energy or whatever in a way that still gets him as much bang for his buck while he's on the ice. So 30 goals and 60 points, like you said, Elon, sure, I think that's a very, very reasonable thing to think. And I think you could also even hope that he will get back up to 65 points again. He's gotten a bad rap as a Ranger, worse than he deserves, and I think some people may have begun to undervalue him going into last year, but I don't think for those of us who have had sort of an even keel look at his value over the years, I don't think his value significantly changes from last year or the year before or the year before that going into this year's draft. I think you can confidently draft him around where you would have had him last year, but just be careful not to bump him up too much higher on your list. So, okay, I think I know what your answer will be here, but just looking at points, who do you think will have more, Nick Foligno or Rick Nash? Foligno had more last season. Yes, four more points. I'm going to go Rick Nash to handle that difference next year. Is this going to be a point of contention? Is this going to be one of the earliest Carl Smartest battles of 2015-16? No, I think I'm with you the most of, of this prediction of all of yours so far. I think that Rick Nash is probably a solid bet for 65 points and more like 30 to 35 goals. Don't expect the 42 goals that you saw this year, but I would prefer him over Felino. Also, you know me, I care a lot about their situation on the team, and like Rick Nash will always be on the top line of the top power play. You can't guarantee that for Nick Felino. Next, let's talk about a guy who tied for 8th in league scoring this season and probably someone who most people didn't even have projected in their top 20. That's right, I want to talk about Yuri Hoodler, who had 76 points in 78 games, almost a point per game. And we already talked about him a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, but he's worth mentioning again, especially in this segment. His previous career high was 57 points in 82 games with Detroit back in 08-09. And then last year, he actually had a second best before this season. He had 54 points in 75 games in Calgary, which would have been even higher than the 57 points he had in Detroit that year if he played the full season. This year, he played three more games, but had a whole crapload more points, 22 more points. What happened with Yuri Hoodler this year? How did he get so many points? And is there any chance he could even... I don't want to ask you if he's going to get 76 points next season. I know you're going to say 
say, no, it's boring. But will he be a 65, 70-point player, potentially? Like, where do you draft this guy? Well, we talked about Felino and how he ranks 12th in shooting percentage in the entire NHL over the last couple years, and also how we thought it was still a little bit suspect. I'm not going to say the same for Yuri Hoodler. Yuri Hoodler is one guy whose shooting percentage we're not going to pick apart and get into. I think he's proven himself since the most recent lockout. He ranks third amongst all regular NHL forwards in converting shots into goals. He is a very stable, high percentage shooter. I like him that way. I'm not going to say that his ridiculous shooting percentage of like 18-19% over the last few years is going to regress and that's going to cause him to stop scoring goals and getting points. What helped him this year was that he took more shots per 60 minutes at even strength than he ever has since returning from his one-year stint in the KHL back in 2010. Now, even with that, he's still barely registering two shots on goal per game. So while he could justifiably repeat his career-high 31-goal season at that pace of two shots on goal per game, it would be a heck of a challenge, one which would be really made a lot easier if he just threw more pucks on net. But odds are, looking at his career history, he's not about to start doing that. So if he scores this many goals again next year, he's going to have to do it the hard way. To me, with Hoodler, I feel like the reason why he did so well this year is because he was playing with Monaghan and Godro, who also had career years. Of course, they're so young. Of course, they had career years. It was Godro's first year. But they were so good, and so Hoodler obviously benefited from playing with such hot line mates. So I feel like your prediction of Hoodler has a lot to do with what you think will happen with Godro and Monaghan. Isn't that right? That was one of the best lines in hockey this year. So much fun to watch anytime I was able to see them on TV. But the interesting part is that what those three did as a unit in terms of on-ice shooting percentage was not significantly different from what's been happening with Hoodler ever since he came to Calgary. Last year, he played with Backlund and Monaghan and saw a similar on-ice shooting percentage. And before that, he played with Roman Cervenka and Michael Backlund, and they also saw a similar on-ice shooting percentage. So what was the difference? Why did he get so many more points? Well, I'm going to go back again to shots. He threw about 50 more shots on net, which at his shooting conversion rate comes out to a fair amount of goals and not insignificant number of goals. And I'm also going to go back to the same thing I said for Nick Foligno, which was that there were a lot more shots taken while he was on the ice from high danger areas. Uh, War on ice calls this the home plate area, and it encompasses not just the slot and the low slot, but also the high slot and the left slot and the right slot. You can see these images over at war-on-ice.com. And then find the hex tallies from there and go way down to the bottom. You can see exactly how these things are shaped. But saw a much greater number relative to the rest of the leagues of his shots taken while he was on the ice from those areas than he had in the three years prior to this one. Also, on the power play, Yuri Hoodler and his line mates saw an average of about nine more shot attempts towards the net per 60 minutes of power play time which is really handy. I mean, his power play point numbers did not necessarily eclipse those of past years, but they were very solid. Okay, so you're sort of explaining why he got more points than last year, but all these things, like when you say that he had shots from better positions or while he was on the ice, his team took shots from better places, like, is that something that means he'll do better next year or worse? Like, what does that actually tell us? Ah, yes, the bane of these statistics is that Right now, they are more descriptive than they are predictive. But knowing how the points game helps us, and I feel like 
this season was not a terrible aberration for Yuri Hoodler. I think with that line and the way that they look to be clicking, I see really good things still coming from them for the next couple of years. And we know the Flames sort of beat the odds this year in terms of how they were still able to win games while giving up most of the shot attempts against them. And that could become a little B in this line's bonnet if it continues being a problem. But for now, I feel pretty optimistic about Yuri Hoodler, Johnny Godreau, and Sean Monaghan going into next year. All right, so this is pretty interesting. A, a rare situation where Brian doesn't go with what he did previous to this year, but he's saying he does think what happened this year and it being such a big increase over other years is something that might be sustainable. So if he had 76 points this year, what do you predict for next? I would love to see him get 65 70 points next year and like this is not characteristic of me and I'm not sure why I'm doing it exactly I think I really just had a lot of fun watching them and as with this whole Flames team there's not a whole lot of explaining you can do about their success so I'm just gonna ride this wave and uh and yeah go with it feels dangerous (laughs) yeah Brian's all I've never seen him like this before he's so excited okay so you've got Nash ahead of Felino. where do you put Hoodler in there is Hoodler ahead of Felino? Hoodler's ahead of Felino and somewhere around Nash. I feel like Hoodler might have greater upside, which still seems crazy to say, but Nash, I feel, would be the more reliable choice. And the difference between the two next year might not be big enough for you to want to risk taking Hoodler over Nash, but then again, maybe you do? Well, also don't forget that it depends if you need goals or assists. Nash is a better goal guy. Hoodler did have 31 goals this year, but before that, his highest ever was 25, so a big difference. Okay. Let's talk about another player. We've only talked about like four players. How long have we been talking, Brian? Let's get moving. How about Michael Delzato? In 64 games this season, Delzato had 32 points, so exactly half point per game. Same as Jack Johnson, and I was saying how I was excited about him, so how can you not be excited about Michael Delzato? And he really just had a resurgence for his career. Like, previously, he had 11 points in 42 games last year for the Rangers, 5 points in 25 games for Nashville. It's been a while since he's had a full season, actually, only in his first year with the Rangers, where he had 37 points in 80 games, then he had 41 points in 77 games in 11-12, so he looked like he was going to be good, then things completely fell off this year he was back to a half point per game defenseman and I'm really curious to know where we need to draft this guy this year I think he's one of the biggest question marks and to me I think it all comes down to how much time he's going to get and what role he's going to play on the Flyers because this season he averaged almost 22 minutes a game and had this half point per game pace in the last couple of years where he was basically a non-factor he was more like 16 or 17 points per game and again when he had his best season with the Rangers he was playing 22 and a half minutes so it seems to me like your prediction for Delzato is really your prediction of how he'll be used by the team so Brian where does he fit into the depth chart and do you think he'll be able to be a half point per game player again next season well on Philadelphia's depth chart Michael Delzato finds himself in a pretty good spot not necessarily all to his credit but partially to the miscredit of Philadelphia Flyers management because they have botched their blue line situation so badly that there is really nobody else on the blue line capable of doing what Delzato and Strite did this season on the power play. And beyond that, they can't even add more guys on that blue line because it's already bloated in salary as it is. So because of that, sort of by default, Delzato sits in a good place as a 24-year-old compared to Mark Strite, who will be turning 38 
in December of 2015. And as a 37-year-old, though, he managed 52 points this year. He had a fantastic season, and we should not go without recognizing it. Yeah, for sure. Mark Stritz had an amazing career, by the way. It's so crazy to look at these numbers. You look every year, he's like 50, close to 50. He even had a 62-point year once in Montreal. But like you say, like he's getting older. At some point, he's going to slow down. And I don't see anyone on Philadelphia's depth chart, aside from Michael Delzato, who I could see challenging right now for a top power play and high minutes role. So I feel like I feel good about Delzato getting those good minutes next season. Now the question is, Brian, with him getting all these points, with these minutes, was there some aberration in terms of fancy stats or something? Or is it something you think will stay consistent? I think Del Sato probably scored a few more goals than he should have. But the good news is that he had 22 assists last year. And that was in only 64 games. And there's nothing to me that really indicates that that number is very shaky, that there's any reason it was any higher than it could or should have been last year. So if you extend that to an 80-game pace, I think Elon, with a reasonable number of goals, you're already up to, you know, 30 or 35 points on the season. And speaking of what would be a reasonable number of goals, well, the bright side of what Delzato's done last year, even though he did have a high shooting percentage, he had a really great shot rate. He had 119 shots in 64 games. That's almost two per game, which is way better than Well, pretty much the one, one and a half per game that he managed over the last couple seasons before this one. He started his career with 37 points in his rookie season, then went down to 11 points in 47 games, but then bounced back with 41 points in 77 games. It's not like he doesn't have the pedigree to do this sort of thing. I think his value probably goes way up in this year's draft after he was essentially forgotten for the last couple years, and rightfully so. You can look at him as a 35-point guy, and if you really want to stretch it, maybe 40, and I don't even know if that's too big of a stretch. Again, we're looking at who gets that top power play time in Philadelphia because that first unit is just so good, and a lot of that is going to depend on how well Mark Streit holds up. Elon, I'm going to do this to you now. Do you pick Michael Delzato or Jack Johnson first next year? Oh, I was going to ask you that question. That's your job, Ryan. But okay, I think gun to my head right now, I still would take... Oh, it's actually tough. I was thinking Jack Johnson just because I know he's for sure on the top power play. But of course, that power play on Columbus is nothing compared to the one with Giroux and Voracek over in Philadelphia. But I think Jack Johnson's more of a sure thing to sort of be a main guy there. Del Zotto, I think it looks like he should be good, but I'm not as confident, so I would just be more conservative and take Jack Johnson. But I could totally see it going either way, and I do think Del Zotto probably has more upside. Let's put it this way. Jack Johnson is to Michael Del Zotto as Rick Nash is to Yuri Hoodler. You know, Brian, that's a good analogy. I like that. Okay, and I'm looking at the list of players we wanted to talk about, and I still see four more. We've only talked about five so far. I've talked about Felino, Jack Johnson, Nash, Delzato, and Hoodler. I guess maybe let's cut it here, and maybe the next episode we could talk about some more players. And maybe mail us in if you're listening to this. Mail us in. <laughs> Tweet at us or something. Let us know if you can think of any other players who you think should be on the list of players who had surprising years, and you want to know if we think they'll be able to keep it up or not. So that's at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. Also, before we go, like I mentioned at the top, we've got a special promotion, I guess if you want to call it, going on right now. You could be a patron. Well, you could always have been a patron of Keeping Carlson for any amount, but you'll get all the patron benefits. We really want you to sign up. You could spend a dollar a month. That's nothing. Sign up for a dollar a month. Join our Facebook group. Get access to all of our patron casts. And we're going to be doing things with the patrons over the year. We're actually going to potentially be 
or maybe I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. We're planning on doing a patron pool starting next year that's going to go on for the rest of history. It's going to be amazing. So you want to be a patron for that. But anyway, okay, that's enough self-promotion. I hope that you liked this summer episode, gave you some things to think about. Like I said, let us know if you could think of some players you want us to talk about next time. Don't worry, we already have some. Maybe you have some. And maybe you might also have some players who were surprising in a bad way. Players who kept up a pace of suckiness that you didn't expect to go for the rest of the season. And then it did. Kind of like how Evgeny Malkin had a whole series of suckiness against the Rangers after we talked about how he ended the season badly. That's interesting. But we won't talk about Evgeny Malkin. That's the end of this week's show. I'm rambling. It's a summer episode. I could let loose a little bit. It's not as serious and corporate as our normal regular season episodes. So, okay. Thanks so much for listening. Let's cue that outro music and Brian, read us the credits. This non-sucky episode was presented by Daily Faceoff and supported by our patrons. Welcome aboard to all our new ones. We're happy to have you for the summer and beyond. And this episode could not have been possible without help from WarOnIce.com, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Behind the Net, Yahoo Sports, and ESPN Fantasy Hockey. But seriously, War on Ice. Well, I actually used a lot of ESPN, but thanks a lot, Brian. Great job. I'm really excited for our next episode, which I guess will drop in a couple of weeks, and we'll, of course, have a new update on how I've caught up in the playoff pools. That'll be something to look forward to. Bye, everyone. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Till then, keep on keeping Carlson alive in your playoff pools. Oh, man, how great would that be if Carlson is still around in a couple of weeks? Oh, my God. Fade out.